I'm Fraser Medford-Corn. I'm Roisin Caird. And I'm Johnny Rhodes. And welcome to True Scotsman, the history and current affairs podcast where we delve into a variety of topics and dispel your illusions. We have fun making them and hope you have fun listening to them. Listeners, it's Roisin. I am hosting today's episode on the Celts. Unfortunately, because of a slight technical difficulty, the first 10 minutes of the recording were lost. So, rather than attempt to recreate them, I'm just going to quickly fill you all in on what was covered, and then we'll join in the conversation where it starts. So, the theme of this episode was to question who were the Celts? Most people tend to associate them with Scotland, Ireland and Wales, the Isle of Man, and maybe northern France and Cornwall. I wanted to know how true that was, and the answer surprised me. The word Celt is one that's changed in meaning over the millennia, and has referred to and continues to refer to different groups of people, depending on when it was used. There isn't much information on where the Celts originated, because they didn't tend to write things down. We need to rely on archaeological evidence. Most historians believe that the Celts originated somewhere between 800 and 500 years BC in either France or Western Germany, and the evidence for that is based on the fact that many of the place names in those surrounding areas have their roots in Celtic languages. So, for example, languages which have the same root as the Celtic languages that we know today, such as Gaelic, Welsh and Scots Gaelic, among others. However, as we'll see, we don't know to what extent these people held a unified culture or even if they called themselves Celts at this point in time. And that brings us up to now. Now, it's around 500 years BC that a group of people who we can identify as the Celts actually emerges in writing. So that kind of confirms their existence. That's our best source. And that is by a guy called Hecat. He- Hecateus of Miletius. Mil- Miletus. It's going to be a lot of that, guys. Um, and he was a Greek philosopher. <laughs> Just so you all know, there's going to be a lot of impossible to pronounce names. But uh, Hecateus, who's a Greek geographer, in 517 BC, he's writing about these people living near Malaysia, which is modern day Marseille. And he's using the term Keltoi. So this is the first time that we ever see something like Celts being used for an ethnic group. And Keltoi, it could have been a Greek word meaning tall ones. Uh, it could also just mean being a general word for like foreigner because the Greeks were w- aware of different foreigners and it's sort of a way of saying like, okay, these are people who aren't Greek. They don't speak Greek. They're not from Africa. They're not from uh, the East. So we'll, we'll call them Celts. That's our word for people from Northwest Europe. But it also might have been a word being used by the early Celts themselves. We just don't know. The thing is, the Greeks might have called these people Celts as a general term, but that doesn't mean that they were all using that term. You know, it's sort of an Mm. assumption that the Greeks are kind of saying like, oh, all of these people are the Celts. But how much that's uh, how they felt about themselves isn't something that we can really know. Um, Yeah, that does seem to happen a lot with um, people who travel uh, around the world to, you know, end up just inventing entire words for things. Uh, one of my favorite ones is so that, you know, some travelers turn up to a place like, hey, 
this thing over here, we're going to call it a tor. Uh, and then the next person comes along, is like, what do you call that thing? It's like, oh, it's called tor. Oh, we're going to call it tor pen. Then the next lot come along. It's like, oh, what's that? Oh, it's tor pen. Oh, let's call it tor pen how instead. It's like, okay, so this place is called Torpenhow, and it's a hill. So it's Torpenhow Hill, yeah. which translates to hill, 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 hill. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that sort of thing happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is actually very helpful because it, it kind of gives historians uh, a way of tracing who came into contact with Hill, 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 Hill when. Um, but yeah, yeah um, so fast forward about 500 years and several writers and geographers, including some guy called Julius Caesar, is saying mm. that the people uh, known to the Romans as the Gauls, so the people living in France around that time, the Gauls refer to themselves as Celts. And that suggests that even if the name Keltoi was given by the Greeks, it's now been adopted to some extent as a collective name for the tribes of Gaul. However, it can't be assumed that all of these tribes considered themselves Celts. Um, although they might have had a shared belief system or similar languages, scholars have also noted, right, get ready for this bit, there is no reference anywhere to people in Britain referring to themselves as Celts or being referred to as Celts. In yeah. fact, um, <gasps> what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I've, I've actually heard that before. And I mean, I think you're touching on throughout just a big problem we have with this, which is everything written about the Celts was written by people who hate them. I mean, we know mm. that the Celts make brilliant, amazing armor and had great shields and stuff. Mm. But if you ask anyone, they'll go, oh yeah, Celts only went into battle naked. It's like, no, some of them did. But I think they were like... Yeah the weirdos of the group, you know, or the really mm. devout, you know, like so, I'm prove my faith by going in naked, you know, they wore great armor and they didn't call themselves Celts and they had all these other things that they were said to have done, but didn't do just because the people writing about them thought they were savages. Um, yeah, no, you are, you are right, Johnny. Um, and that a lot of the, so a lot of what we base our understanding of, um, both Celtic and Britonic culture is actually on the writings of Julius Caesar. Like he wrote down a lot of what he saw, but it's kind of like he didn't really understand most of what he was seeing. So usually he was looking at it through the lens of someone who's not within the culture. Like someone was talking about how um, the way he talks about Druids, he kind of says like, oh yeah, Druid, they can do whatever they want. They can be lawmakers, they can be teachers, they can do like be priests you know they can do all this stuff and it's like they were probably a class of people who had certain specialities like it probably wasn't just if you're a druid you can do whatever you want it's more like there was a class of people who were called druids and as individuals they had different things that they did um, and different things that they specialized in but they were generally people given uh, a certain amount of status and a certain amount of responsibility but going back to the thing of um yeah so nowhere refers to uh, people in Britain being called Celts. It's actually noted that Strabo, uh, one of the Greek writers who were, were writing about the Celts like a few hundred years before, um, Strabo actually uh, distinguished Britain from the Celts. He considered the people living in Britain and the people uh, calling themselves Celts to be different. And because of that, some scholars now believe that ancient Celts did not live in Britain at all. Um, oh. and they were all confined to the European continent and the people living in Britain and Ireland at the time called themselves different names. They might have had shared culture or cultural overlap, but they did not consider themselves Celtic. Hmm. Mm. So there's sort of a, 
debate today about whether it's actually helpful to keep referring to the ancient Britain, Britons of 2000 years ago to keep calling those people Celts. So some people mm. argue that by calling them Celts, we're basically ignoring cultural differences because even though they shared a lot of cultural beliefs that doesn't mean that they were the same a lot of us share cultural beliefs with other cultures but that doesn't mean the cultures are the same yeah absolutely so for example different tribes not just in britain but in the rest of celtic europe they varied in terms of things like their burial traditions and the types of houses that they lived in uh it's also argued that people who consider themselves celtic today so scotland ireland etc if we start referring to the people living here uh, 2000 years ago as Celtic that kind of makes us think that there's almost a through line you know as though like Celtic people lived here 2000 years ago and then there's a straight line from there to here of uh, of Celtic traditions and Celtic culture and calling ourselves mm. Celts which isn't necessarily true and you know then we might then consider ourselves descended from the Celts of Gaul and Europe and it's maybe important mm. to have that distinction on the well, other hand languages of modern day Celtic nations are descended from the same roots as the ones being spoken in Celtic <clears throat> Europe at the time. And we can see that in place names throughout Northern Europe, a lot of which have the same root. It's also noted by Caesar, the inhabitants of Britain did have similarities of their language and their culture to that of the Gauls in France. So there was definitely overlap, migration and exchange. But having a similar language doesn't mean the same because French and Italian are similar, you know. Uh, Czech and Polish are similar, but that doesn't mean it's, they're the same. It's, it's Indo-European, you know, so like technically you can find similarities in languages going as far as, you know, Persia all the way up to, uh, all the way up to the UK, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, there's, there's basically a bit of academic debate about whether or not we should consider those people living in Britain at the time as Celts or not, mm. whether that's helpful, but also whether it's reality. Um, mm. Now, of course, the, the province of the Celts in Europe didn't last. Uh, you've got the expansion of the Roman Empire. You've got migrating Germanic tribes. Um, and eventually, the Celts and the Britons, whatever you want to call them, they ended up being restricted to Ireland and Western Scotland, Wales and Cornwall mm. and the Isle of Man and also Brittany and France. And other parts of Europe, they're essentially kind of wiped out where they used to be prominent. So uh, between the 5th and 8th centuries, Celtic-speaking communities in these regions emerged with a reasonably cohesive cultural identity and that's how they developed what is now known as the insular Celtic languages. So Gaelic, Gallic, Welsh, Breton, Cornish and Manx. So those languages, that's the ones which have developed here in Britain and they're different to the ones which were spoken in the rest of continental Europe. And all of these places, they had a common linguistic, religious and artistic heritage and that kind of distinguishes them from the culture of the places that surround them. But yeah, by the 6th century, those continental Celtic languages had basically died out. And after that, the concept of Celtic identity sort of dies out for a bit. So there's still influence from that previous culture, but no group is really referring to themselves as Celtic. And then in the 1400s, this huge thing happens with the invention of the printing press. So this means that people start reading and uh, they're able to get access to, for example, uh, Caesar's accounts of the Celts in Western Europe, and of course his experiences in Britain. And that's something that people hadn't had access to before. This sort of happens at the same time that the concept of nation states with defined borders is starting to become more common. And that means people are starting to think about their own national heritage, including the parts of Europe which were once occupied by Celtic people. And that word Celts starts to become a general term 
that just means pre-Romans. So anyone who lived in Northwestern Europe before the Roman conquest is a Celt. That's how people start talking about them. And people start getting quite excited about the concept of uh, this Celtic heritage that they might have. Now, in 1592, uh, our man George Buchanan, big old Scottish historian and teacher to James VI, he's actually the first person to refer in writing to the Celts as being in Ireland and Britain. And he seems to be the first person who made that connection and wrote it down. Hmm. That's what it is. One thing I was going to say is how, uh, I'm interested in the printing press, but maybe we'll get back to it like, you know, later on. But I was going to say hmm. how the printing press seems to have been a great tool for language standardization across, across Europe and across the world, mm -hmm. really. And how that standardization does seem to have, like, you know, kind of killed off a lot of minority languages in a very substantial way. So maybe that's why Celtic speaking communities kind of disappeared, really. That I mean, they kind of just got wiped out they, by. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's on that point. I think a large part of it as well comes with central power. Um, mm -hmm. Like in France, if you went to France 500 years ago, you would have found many different types of French. Just like how even in, in Germany, there's high German and there's kind of different dialects. You know, when we say German, it's kind of weird to say. The reason being why that's changed tends to be because there's now like there was a central chief or king and he wants his orders listened to. And he doesn't like the idea of people speaking something there and something there and it all getting muddled up. I mean, where did Celtic languages survive best? It was in places of very weak central authority, like northwestern France, the Isle of Man, the Highlands of Scotland, the far west of Ireland. Basically, wherever people could basically be like, oh, the king wants us to speak something else, go away. Um, that's where these languages survived. So I think, you know, mm. the printing press did play a role, but I think a large part of it as well is just, you know, some very powerful guy saying, right, we're all speaking this language now. I mean, this is a wee bit of a tangent, but um, there's actually an example of that from the 20th century. Can I tell it? No. Oh. <laughs> no, go ahead. No. It's, it's from Bill, it's a book by Bill Bryson. He talks about it basically in the early 20th century in America with all these new immigrant communities. There were communities in America speaking Swedish and Norwegian mm. and German and Dutch. And this was very normal for you to drive through a town and people just have signs in Swedish. But eventually, uh, partly due to fears over things like anarchism and xenophobia, they tried to really steamroll these communities. And the governor mm. of Iowa at the time, he said something which was hilarious. It's like, um, he recommended people stop praying in other languages because God is only listening to the English tongue. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but I can, no, I, I, I don't think God would speak English. I don't think God would like only speak English. That's like, of all the languages to pick. access to Duolingo. Like I'm pretty sure, <laughs> pretty like, like plus account as well, not even just free. I, I bet that bird's still kind of kicking his ass as well. Yeah, because yeah, it's like God definitely predates English by like quite a lot, um, mm. even just as a concept. God wasn't answering anyone's prayers until like Chaucer came out of work. <laughs> He's like, damn, this guy's got it. <laughs> yeah, like uh, it sort of reminds me of, uh, I remember I told you about this, Fraser, um, and Johnny might already know about it, but um, mm. when the Education Act was brought in in 17 something or other, um, mm -hmm. And it basically said all uh, education has to be taught in English, like all across the UK mm -hmm. or all across Britain. Um, 
And of course, there were parts of Scotland and probably parts of Ireland and parts of Wales where maybe the kids didn't speak English, they only spoke Gaelic, so it would exclude them from uh, education unless their parents started teaching them English. So for that's an example of the sort of thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and that brings yeah. back to the Celts. Well, yeah, because uh, speaking of the 1700s, uh, a Welsh geographer called Edward Lloyd drew links between the Celts described by the ancient Greeks and by the ancient Romans. And he makes a connection between these languages being now being spoken in Scotland, Ireland, the Isle of Man. And he realizes that all of these languages had the same root as found in uh, pre-Roman Europe. And he sort of gets quite excited about that. And because these languages that he's talking about, so Gaelic, Manx, etc., and Breton as well, down in France, and because these languages were pre-Roman, and because they were in Western Europe, and because at this point, the word that everyone is using for pre-Roman Western Europe is Celt, he calls these languages Celtic. So that does not necessarily mean that these languages were ever spoken by the ancient Celts. That's just the word that he decided to use. He could have called them Western European. He could have called them Atlantic languages, but he called them Celtic. And that's why people now make that connection between the ancient Celts and Celtic nations and Celtic languages of today. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, okay, so it's like basically this this word has gone from being, you know, something that the Greeks might have used and kind of applied to various barbarians, quote-unquote, to like this kind of um, you know, generalized term that people were using in Europe, to now just being this blanket term that everyone uses to understand people living 2,000 years ago, to now being this term that people use to mean Scotland, Ireland, Wales, you know, and it's basically because of that language connection, because we know that the languages spoken here have that same root as the ones in Europe. That's the main justification. And also there is cultural overlap as well. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting, this whole sort of basically the, the knowledge that aside from a few points, there's whole Celtic identity that a lot of people are rightfully really proud of and forms a huge part of people's understanding of what their country is, is kind of mythological. Or, right. Yeah, and I, I wonder, like, is it, would it ever be possible to shake that? Can we imagine an Ireland, for example, where Celtic isn't part of it, or where we have to basically re-examine what it is to be, say, Irish or Scottish or Britannese or whatever, because that is, that is quite incredible. I mean, you can't, walk down a street, a tourist street in Ireland or Scotland or Wales without references to that. Mm. Yeah, you always get that curly-whirly type of design, you know, that uh, Celtic curve-looking yeah. thing. I don't know, how, how legit is that? It is quite legit. It is quite legit. And that's the thing, because it's not so much that it's not true, it's more that it depends how you look at it and how you understand it. So these places mm. definitely have roots in Celtic culture. They definitely descended from the same pre-Celtic culture. So they're definitely cousins of the Celts, if not Celtic themselves. And, you know, those curly designs, the Celtic crosses, like that stuff which was in Scotland and in Ireland before they started, you know, before they were being identified as Celts, because it still had that overlap from the culture that existed there before. So these cultures are all legitimate. It's more the words that we use for them and the extent to which we can say that people considered themselves Celtic 2000 years ago. Whether we're just lumping all that together um, 
you know, just lumping this huge swathe of different tribes and different peoples and different kingdoms together and calling them one thing and understanding whether that's fully accurate. Yeah, it's, it's something that I always find so weird whenever people talk about something like, you know, say Western civilization. It's mm. like, what the hell is that? <laughs> like, that is nothing. There, there is no single unifying feature in all of this. Yeah, yeah, so we just kind of use these phrases because maybe they're useful, but maybe they're not actually that useful. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah it, it's sort of like, it was just a phrase that caught on, I guess. Like, they sort of kind of mm. used Celtic for those languages and for those places. Um, because it made sense within the culture at the time that the connection was made. As we go on, we realise, oh, maybe that's not accurate, but it's also, as Johnny says, so much a part of what we call ourselves now. And that's why a lot of academics, um, rather than saying, oh, we shouldn't call these places Celtic, more stress making a distinction between modern-day Celtic nations and the ancient Celts of Greek and Roman times. Which kind of brings me on to modern-day Celtic nations. So uh, these are places which are defined as related ethnicities who share a similar language or culture and who live or descend from one of the regions in Western Europe populated by Celts. So these are Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, Isle of Man and Brittany. They also usually use or once used one of the Celtic languages defined by Edward Lloyd. So throughout the 17 and 1800s, we kind of see this concept of Celtic identity evolve. By the late 1800s, this starts to feed into an independent national identity for some people. Probably most significantly in Ireland, where it's this pretty major role in the fight for Irish independence and autonomy from Britain. But also you get Wales, uh, Scotland and Brittany start to have nationalist movements appearing at the time. We enter into a period called the Celtic Revival or Celtomania, uh, and that's where we'll start going mad for anything Celtic. And the biggest influence is probably seen in Ireland, where there's this new appreciation of uh, Irish Gaelic literature and poetry. And there's this romanticization of the stereotypes of noble savages and painted the impression that a lot of people had of Scotland at a time, this heritage of ancient Celtic warriors and traditions who run about in their tartan and their kilts and don't wear any shirts and yeah yeah, like, that's yeah it's, it's, it's it's a great way to sell like you know romance novels to people right uh, you know right? They, they, that's it's such a intriguing idea i just think of these you know rugged masculine i might need to i might need to pause my microphone um, no, you know <laughs> you need to excuse yourself fraser for a minute I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I'm strong. You'll be okay. <laughs> I can do this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Outlander for the 18th century. Like, that's... Mm -hmm. And that carries on until about World War II. And then the movement becomes more about preserving Celtic customs and identities and focusing on linguistic revival. So in 1961, there's something called the Celtic League founded. And this mm -hmm. promotes inter-Celtic unity with a focus on promoting Celtic languages and self-governance. And obviously that eventually leads up to the establishment of the Scottish and the Welsh parliaments. And so... Yeah, kind of pushing for this idea of self-government and autonomy. But also genetics do play a role in Celtic identity. So some people can trace their genealogy and ancestry back to the original people in Scotland and Ireland, etc. And therefore back to that sort of pre-Celtic time. There are a few genetic variations for in people of Celtic descent. So for example, apparently we're more likely to develop something called hemocratosis. And that's where your body stores too much iron and becomes overloaded with iron. Huh. Right? Um, we also uh, apparently have lactase persistence, which from what I can make out basically just means that uh, we're less likely to be lactose intolerant. It less just means likely. Less likely. Oh, that's good. I like, 
Well, I mean, we were talking about cheese for ages earlier, so it's kind of quite appropriate. And as I'm fed every St. Patrick's Day, we Celtic people should go to the dairy aisle of the nearest Tesco's and just free base milk and yogurt for hours. In a oh, I'm just gonna, in order I'm gonna drink double cream. Old gods. They can't stop all of us. Gonna get, like, us. Gonna get exactly. double cream in and mix it with Baileys. Just so I've got like double Baileys cream and that would just be like, so rub much cream. your nipples as you mm. scream out the battle cry of your ancestors. That's how I want to celebrate. That's how I yeah. want to die. But yeah, this is sort of, uh, it's resulted in the increased use of the Celtic cross, which we find all across Europe, the promotion of Celtic languages like Gaelic, Welsh and Irish, and also a big resurgence in Celtic culture, which is then established today through artwork, music, Cayleys, and of course, festivals like Celtic Connections in Glasgow. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's sort of the Celts. Like I kind of went out to uh, sort of define who the Celts were. And uh, it turns out there are three different definitions, depending on which part of history you're looking at, including today. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's great. Thank you very much. It's, um, it is such a massive topic, isn't it? Like, mm. I remember I was talking to somebody who was, who was, who was doing uh, Celtic studies at the university here. And they said that basically the entire thing was just like dealing with this one question that you've kind of set yourself today. And that was like a ten week a ten week course. And I think even at the end of it the professor's like, Who were the Celts? Mm. Like, you know, just shrugged their shoulders because it went I, I, I don't know. It's, it's really annoying when you put it like that, because it's it's basically modern history courses are just undoing the laziness of Victorian writers. It's like <laughs> 300, 200 years ago, they used to just draw a big circle on a section of the map and go, right, those guys are those guys. We're leaving it at that. Don't ask any questions. Don't go rooting around. Just they're the same, okay? Blanket sameness. And then people actually going there and going, well, actually, nah, there, there is some variation here. We can't just call them all this thing because that's wrong. And it's just been us unpicking that stitch, essentially for a hundred years of academia. So I'm not sure yeah. we're going to conclude this today. Um, uh, I, I, th- I think, I think, I think that's it. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that whoever is listening, um, has a better idea of who the Celts are and where now. Um, do we sorry? need to record anything else by the way? Not for this. No. So if Johnny wants, he can awesome. stop recording. Uh, uh-huh. bye everyone. Hope you're staying safe and staying alert. Yep. Do you have a message for the listeners before we go? No, not really. No, that covered it. Uh, I have a message for the listeners. Oh, nice. If I may. I think, um, you know, whether you're Celtic or another group of people that may or may not have existed, you all just need to remember one key thing, and that is cheese is better by the wheel, and your home is not complete without a wheel of cheese large enough to kill a small child. Okay, great. Well... Thank you all for listening. Uh, Come back next week where we'll have an episode on Scottish beasts and where to find them. And yeah, see you then. Bye. True Scotsman is a Scottish history and culture podcast by Roisin Caird, Fraser Medvedick-Horn and Johnny Rhodes. The music is by Adam Logan. Each Saturday, we release a new episode exploring an aspect of Scottish history that we're interested in and that we want to tell you about. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support it, share the podcast around, tell your friends. We're here every week with a new episode for you.